Hi everyone, welcome back to Socially Distant Tea Time. I'm Caitlin McGrayus, founder of Be Her Village, and here with me is Evelyn Page, licensed clinical social worker, and Laura Otten, licensed clinical social worker. They are both maternal mental health specialists, and these are our socially distant tea times that we started because we were all quarantined with our small children and really freaking stressed out. And I was like, hey, let me share my experience, and you guys can give me therapy on live TV. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are, like two and a half months later, almost three months later. Yeah. And I have to tell you, just theme of the week, I feel a little bit like it's week one of the pandemic again. Like that's where my stress levels are this week. I was doing so good and I was like in a bubble and in a happy routine and I was feeling good. And I think part of that was because the uncertainties of the pandemic had come down and there was food and there was the medical system was still in place and my husband had recovered, but we have to address it. We have to address it. There's race riots, yeah. there's riots, there's protests, there's maybe a revolution happening and there's no matter which side or which opinion you take. And I don't really want to get into any of that. I have lots. If you want to, if you want to see that, just go on my personal Instagram account. Um, but it's stressful. It's stressful whether you support the police. It's stressful whether you support the protesters. It's stressful whether you feel torn between the two of them. It just feels similarly for me anyway. In the beginning of the pandemic, what felt overwhelming about it for me was that there wasn't anywhere to go to escape it. And that's what this feels like. It feels like parts of me are excited that there's maybe going to be change, right? But with change, like in any good therapeutic relationship, like when I go to therapy, it's like, it's good, but it tears me apart and it's painful and awful. And so that's kind of where I am right now. It's like my direct immediate life is not affected. My kids are still here. I'm, they're kind of driving me nuts a little bit, but, um, but I'm having a hard time like turning off the news and turning on, and not the news, I don't watch the news, but turning off my version of the news, which is Facebook, which is the groups I'm in, which is um, New York Times, like looking at, you know, newspapers. It's really scary what's going on there. So make it better, ladies. Make it better. <laughs> <laughs> Give us all your secrets and all your tips. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, we, yes, we have to talk about this. And no, I, I don't want to go into the specifics of it for this podcast though it is an important conversation to be having um but i'm so glad you said that because i it's been on my mind as a mother you're just what you said of like you, we were kind of in our bubbles and i have to remind myself of that being a huge privilege that when i look down at my children when they're with me i'm not scared for their safety based on their skin color it's a protective factor for them so i can be in a bubble um, and so, so millions of people cannot be in that bubble. Um, but I'm thinking of my, my clients who are early postpartum and having this on top of everything else and just trying to breathe through all of it. And that's a thing too with this, I've, I can't breathe and how, um, that experience, you know, if you've seen the video and then feeling anxiety of not being able to breathe kind of mirrors each other, uh, right now. I couldn't watch the video, to be honest with you. It's it's like one of my protective, uh, I don't know. I couldn't watch the video. I, I watched the video of, let's just go there. I watched the video of Amy Cooper because I, I try not to watch any of the videos because I can't, because I really like soak it up. And I think a lot of mothers, and I wonder if you guys could speak to this too. I think probably it's 
partially just that's my personality and my disposition, but I think partially as mothers, we're, we have to be in tune with what's going on and what's safe and what's not safe. We're constantly evaluating our environment and our children's environment for dangers. And so when I watch videos, I soak it up and I, and I, and it really affects me. I have trouble sleeping and I have trouble turning off my brain and I, and I have trouble focusing on the things I want to focus on. And it, it really infiltrates my consciousness. And so I didn't watch the video of George Floyd being murdered and I'm, not planning on watching it. Um, but the Amy Cooper video I watched, I watched her wield her whiteness against a man who was doing nothing. He was asking her to leash her dog, you know? I mean, it's just, yeah. I don't remember where I was going with that, but I, I didn't watch the video. Oh, the I can't breathe. So yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of like at a loss for words here and I'm at a loss for words with my children. And it's, it's like, yeah, please. I think it's also important to, you know, kind of acknowledge the privilege that you have in being able to turn that off because all of the people in the Black community can't, you know, even if they're not watching that specific video, it's something that is just so pervasive and what they see every day. You know, you turn on the news and it's yet another Black person, some person of color being murdered, you know. So, I think it's important to just acknowledge the privilege that white people in this country have. You know, those are, I mean, those are conversations that happen in my house a lot. Um, you know, I'm, I know I'm very light skinned, but I do identify as a Latina. My husband is white. So from the get go, those conversations were happening and we adopted a biracial child. You know, she will grow up to be a white, a, a black woman and a white Country, predominantly white country so in some ways we don't we don't have the luxury of not addressing it you know we can't take a break from it because like you said Laura like I look at my kids and you know one you know I have a daughter who's black I have another child who's biracial you know Latina and white those are going to be conversations that are happening all the time we can't kind of escape it and I think you know in hearing even just from clients you know both clients of color that I've been seeing and white clients that I've been seeing. It is, it is similar to what you said, Laura, like of just like that uncertainty again, of like, I don't know what to do, but we need to keep talking about this. Thank you. Yeah. Really do. Yeah. And you're right. I, I, um, I do have the luxury of not only, is that, is that me? Okay. Um, of not only not watching the video, but of walking around this earth as somebody who doesn't have to fear for it. So I last, so I, I was not, I'm on quite a journey here of like recognizing all this and waking up to it. And I'm trying to call other white people out on it. A lot of people that I grew up with are, you know, all lives matter, blue lives matter, and the protesters are animals. And it's, oh my God, it's so hard to watch. Um, but I remember, I didn't feel, you know, I grew up in Levittown, it was a working class town. And I think there's this idea of like privilege being wealth. And we didn't have wealth. We don't have generational wealth. I'm hoping to create some for my kids, but it's like still a little iffy. Um, but I've learned to look for the privilege, the white privilege. And so my um, son, I lost him last Easter. We lost him in the woods. We had, he had gone on a hike and he got separated and he didn't come back. And there was like a 45 minute manhunt for him. And at the very end, I had found him and I was racing him back 
to my mother's backyard and he was hysterically crying. And he's Hispanic, my husband's Hispanic, all three of my children are, but my son that I um, lost, white presenting, white passing, he looks exactly like me. And the police were called by my mother and like 12 of them, and they were like the cops that were on for Easter. They were like these, I was, I like wanted to pat them on their heads. They were like young, white, wonderful police officers that were there to try to help, but you know, and I remember it was such a high stress situation and I ran up and they just got there and they filled the woods and I ran up with my son and I just looked at them and I said, we got him. He's okay. And they were like, oh, you got him? Yeah, he's okay. Okay. <laughs> and they walked out and they got back in their squad cars and they left. And it struck me in the moment when I walked up to them with my son, that as a white woman with a white son who just lost her son in the woods for 45 minutes, wasn't really a great look. Like, and I suddenly, I realized that it was so privileged of me to be able to say to my fellow white person who happened to be a cop, I'm good, got this, you know? And I had a feeling that if I was any other race, but specifically a black person, and I lost my kid in the woods for 45 minutes, I don't know that it would have gone so smoothly. That I mean, they didn't even check him out. They didn't see his side of the story. They didn't question anybody. They were there to help us. And I, I think I realized in that moment, I didn't fear for my life. I didn't fear for my children's lives. I didn't fear that they were going to ever look at me as anything other than a caring mother. And and I think it's incidences like that where I'm like starting to realize just how much privilege I have, even if it's not privilege I'm asking for. And even if it's, that privilege should be afforded everybody. You know, I don't think that I should be treated worse. I think that other, everybody should be treated with the same support and respect and assumption of innocence that I was given on that day. Anyway, I'm gonna stop talking. You guys talk now. Well, I, you know, I would encourage you and all of me and all the white people, we need to do our own educating on this and not ask for people of color to help us once again, because we have certainly taken enough from them. Um, so there are so many, and they're circulating online of books we can read, um, books for our children, especially if you're listening to this. And like you said, like you're, a lot of us white people associate privilege with wealth. Um, and especially if you grew up as a poor white person, you're thinking, what are you, what are you talking about privilege? Um, so, but there are tons of readings for that. There's tons of things to educate yourself on that and, and hopefully be open to at least hearing it and listening to it. Um, and as far as for, for this podcast with mothering and parenting, you know, parenting is political. So what, no matter what your stance is on this and what you're thinking as you're listening to this, if you're thinking like, well, I just want a parent without politics or without um, racism, without any of that, that's um, impossible because as parents, um, we do need to be political, whether that's the fact that you want your child to have clean drinking water at school or you want your child to um, be exposed to different cultures or your child just not to be um, racist. Uh, racist or be a victim of racism, um, it is political. So you need to get involved and to educate yourself. Big message to the early postpartum moms in the fourth trimester, take care of yourself and take care of your baby. I think sometimes there's this pressure that, you know, we call it the white guild of like, oh, I have to do something. You just feel like, feel bad all the time. And it's, 
we do need to be mindful of taking care of ourselves so then we can be active and be in there and be involved. As Evelyn said, recognize that being in the bubble and focusing on yourself is a privilege um, because you know George Floyd called out for his mother in the video and for every month, I don't know how you could be a mom and not have that tear at your heart um, and imagine his mother watching that um, and how she's how she must feel. Um, so yes, yeah, so, so knowing that your bubble is privilege, but if you're in a place right now where you need to turn off the news and live in that bubble because you just had baby three weeks ago and you're getting no sleep and like that's okay, <laughs> take care of yourself until um, you get to the point. And maybe that's, maybe you're okay donating money or, or reading up on um, children's books on racism. Maybe that feels okay to you you know, doing something, but making sure that you're healthy. Um, same thing if you're struggling with anxiety or depression, keep yourself healthy so then you can be active and involved when you get to a better place. But recognize that that's privilege. As a person of color, you wouldn't be able to, oh, I'll just wait a few months before I think about that. <laughs> you, you can't do that when you're a person of color. Right, and knowing that it's not kind of like a, a you know, just a destination, like once I get here, like I'm, like I'm done. Kind of dealing with racism like I've learned everything I need to learn it's like it's a continual process that everybody um, needs to work on you know and so yeah you do I agree totally need to take care of yourself and give yourself space especially for I mean I know for me and Laura like the majority of our clients are you know postpartum moms or moms you know kind of dealing with that whole phase of life so it, it can feel really overwhelming to think like I've you know got to keep my kid alive I've been healthy and safe and I have to learn all these other things that maybe I just didn't think about before, but it doesn't mean you have to run out and read, you know, 50 books and, you know, buy all these, you know, resources to educate your kids, but know that it's going to be a continual process. Um, it doesn't just end one day, you know, you don't just get to this like state of nirvana and like, oh, I'm totally... I'm bullshit, so I'm fine. Yeah. Story. It's definitely like a an urge for that though. And I have that urge. I want someone to label me the good white person. You know, I want to like donate to a black midwife or a black birth center or post something on Instagram that will like give me the label good white person. And I know that's absurd and that's why I'm saying it because if I'm feeling like that, even though intellectually I know that that's not right, I'm sure that there's other people out there that want that. So it's really great that you guys are talking about that, like continual work and it's always going to be a process. I think that's part of what um, is really difficult about this time though, is that like when we talk about typical postpartum anxiety or even the anxiety surrounding the pandemic, like there was this, the messaging from you guys, and I'm, this is not for you guys, it's just in the context of our podcast, was, you know, just focus on your own family and kind of turn off the news and keep it like you was to make a bubble and was to feel grounded in yourself. And, and the answer to this kind of distress is actually the opposite of that. It's to keep feeling uncomfortable and to think about why you're feeling uncomfortable and to take action to try to write it in whatever power that you have. It might be donating $5. It might be calling people out on Facebook that's uncomfortable. It might be having conversations with your own family. And I'm sure there's lots of, uh, you know, writing letters and there's lots of anti-racist work we can all be doing. But I think this is a really interesting um, time because it's the answer to our feelings as white people, our helplessness and our 
and our struggle with this is not to turn it off. It's actually the opposite. So it's, there's no right answer. It's just, just yeah. yeah. And reaching out to, you know, friends of color that you may have and, and offering support and, you know, kind of starting that conversation with them and being open to, they might say to you, I don't want to talk to you about this and being okay with that, you know, because even if you're the white person that wants to do this work, you know, you have to listen to what, you know, what those people of color are saying, you know, what those communities are saying to you and, and be okay with that, you know, because they may not want to talk to the, to their white friend mm -hmm. about what's going on. But Especially the white friend that Caitlin, you want to be labeled as a good white person, so do I. Like, and, and any white person would be lying if they don't know not to. But not looking for our friends or colleagues or neighbors of color to give us that label of like, let me prove to you how not racist I am. You know that that's not what we should be doing right now. Um, but listening, um, really, and and processing those emotions with other white people of privilege and confronting that privilege too. Um, I've done more confronting of white people that are saying horrible racist things and they're not even, it, I don't think I was ever that bad, but like they're not even understanding the basic foundation that racism still exists, you know? They think that racism is calling someone a name or actively being mean to a person based on their skin color. Like they don't have the structural understanding of systemic racism and how you can be partaking in that even if it's not your fault. Yeah. You so all those didn't do yeah. it. All yeah. the systems that perpetuate racism in this country. Right. It's it's mm -hmm. built in. I just posted something and I can post it with this. Um, it was this little cartoon that explained systemic racism. Mm -hmm. And it was so interesting because it talked I learned a lot reading, uh, watching it, and it talks about how there was redlining. So the politicians like circled neighborhoods that were black and like decided that those neighborhoods shouldn't have any funding. So bankers wouldn't loan to them, public programs wouldn't loan to them, and so they couldn't buy houses. They weren't allowed to go to college, and it sounds really like it was generations ago. So it sounds kind of like how could that affect anything? But I grew up in Levittown, New York, and. In World War II, it, this was the first suburb, you know, that's what we celebrated in Levittown in, in high school, you know, the 50 years of Levittown. It was the first suburb of New York. It was manufactured by William Levitt, and it was low, I think it was like $8,000 or something, and, and there was low-cost loans for all these veterans coming back so they could start families. And Black people were not allowed to buy houses. So Black veterans who had just served and fought in a war for our country were not allowed to buy houses. And the repercussions of that, that had nothing to do with me. I was not alive at the time, but I'm benefiting from the fact that those houses were available and my family bought them. And you know what I mean? Like it's not, it's, I don't think it's as disconnected as any of us think it is. Um, but it's uncomfortable to think about that too, that these, these programs that are building wealth for white people are, are devastating black communities generation after generation after generation. It's really difficult. I also want to just speak from the white perspective of, I think it's hard, to, I find, and maybe you guys have some insight on this, I find it hard to balance, so I'm sure other people do, that are well-meaning. I've had friends say to me, like, I'm not informed enough, I don't want to speak on social media because then I get attacked, I'm being told I'm doing it the wrong way. 
Um, and I've been told I've done it the wrong way and I probably was, but you know, it's like, well, that's part of the learning process, right? Um, so there's this balance of being told as a white person that you have to center black voices, that you have to like listen and give them the tools and give them the money and let them be heard and be centered. And of course, of course. But then there's this also this other thing where we hear that white people are the only ones that can fix this because we're the ones that are, that are the problem and white people can't be silent and white silence is the problem is that we are just accepting this and staying silent on the issues and black people are the only ones speaking out on it. So I find myself a little bit tr having trouble navigating and doing it really imperfectly and being willing to do it imperfectly because I don't know how, how else to do it because I don't want to do nothing, but of trying to navigate this place where I can center black voices and amplify black voices but also do the work and speak out and try to work on it as a white woman. Does that make sense? Do you guys have, do you feel like that at all? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're talking, I know I'm the wrong person to be talking to as a fellow white woman. <laughs> so you need a, you need that's to part of the work with that. Of, of white people talking to white people, you know, yeah. that's, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the work. It's not the only work, but it's part of it. But that's getting cool. guidance from, um people of color of yes you're lead on this and i've got your back on this and i'm going to lend my voice and lend my money resources and also accept the fact that i'm supporting raising you up and and um erasing and being anti-racism but i also need to acknowledge that that's going to possibly hurt me and bring me down, which is a good thing, but it's also going to be something hard to face. My, my husband and I have talked about that. We support some policies that will hurt us financially. Um, we will have to give more than um, what we are currently giving. And we have made a conscious choice of, we would like to support this anyway, because this is what's best for everyone. And it goes down to that fundamental, I care about my, my community. I care about everyone in my country, not just um, people who look and sound and act like and, and pray like me or whatever it is. Um, so that is part of the white conversation too, of you can't just wave your sign, but you also need to accept the fact that as we try to raise up people of color to level the um, playing field also means bringing me down. In, in some ways, not in bringing down sounds is a bad way to put it. Um, <laughs> it's not the right word, but I get what you're saying. It's like you we have to correct the fact that we are privileged. We shouldn't have the inequality. So, right. Yeah. And it, it, um, Amy Cooper waved that around um, and she, she just personified it. It was actually um, kind of great to have it be so blatant because you couldn't question what she was doing. So it was, and people do that all the time, but she did it so blatantly that it's like, oh, well, so there you go. And just to point out about Amy Cooper is that she's a liberal. She votes Democrat. Yeah. She votes blue. And that, and that I think was most enlightening about her was that doesn't matter what party you're on. Like it doesn't matter which politician you. Support. I mean, it matters. Vote, research, vote. But, but she used her whiteness against him, and very easily could have gotten him killed. Very, very easily, and was essentially threatening his life because he asked her to put her dog on a leash. 
Um, like the birds. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Which yeah. was like the rule. Like there was a sign there. Right. Like, your dog. Like, and, <laughs> and even if it wasn't the rule, like he just asked her to, he wasn't threatening her. So this whole, and, and I think part of it is like, there's going to be Amy Coopers. There's going to be, there's going to be racist people. There's going to be bad cops. It's, it's kind of like parents are going to make mistakes. It's what we do afterwards. Why wasn't Amy Cooper charged with making a false 911 report? Why wasn't George Floyd's murderer, you know, charged and arrested the same day? Why weren't the other three? Why weren't all the other black unarmed men and women that were killed in police custody? Why weren't all of their, you know, why weren't they convicted? It's, it's not, you know, it's, I don't know. Nothing is as simple as Facebook memes. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's interesting just to kind of think about, and I was listening to this too, I think it was on, I forget if it was a podcast or NPR, but you know, if, if the police are able to arrest hundreds of people protesting, they could have arrested four people, the four police officers, you know? So it's possible. It's just, again, sort of this systemic and institutionalized racism that exists, you know, and, and I mean, police officers are afforded a different level of justice. You know, they aren't arrested immediately. They're given time to consult with an attorney, consult with a lawyer, prepare a statement. You know, black men and women that are arrested don't aren't given that privilege. Feedback. I I don't want anyone to confuse anti-racist with anti-police because at least that's not where I am right now. I have friends and and family members and lots of people that I know that are police people or, or that are married to them or love somebody who's a police officer. Um, I posted something this morning and it was really interesting. So as a doula and as somebody who supports um, people during their birth, I'm really into evidence-based care, right? So that's looking at the science and seeing what the right thing or the wrong thing is. So I'm not the person out there shouting like, home birth is for everyone or doctors are terrible or you know, hospitals are bad, because that's not true. And it's just, you can't lay that uniformly out, but there's definitely improvements that need to be made and doctors, some of them are bad and doing the wrong thing. And some hospitals, absolutely, there's a culture that doesn't consider women. And the evidence shows that and lays out how to fix it. So what I found really interesting, and it was something that just kind of cut through all the like, all lives matter, black lives matter, like all of this just shouting from both sides, it's not actually productive, um, was a post by a group and I can share it also, lots of things to share on this post. Um, a post that had uh, collected, it was a group that collected all the data about police officers and they broke down like actual steps that reduce police violence. And it's not the things you think, it's not, um, it's actually not body cams, it's not anti, uh, it's not implicit bias training, it is, their contracts, paying attention to their contracts, because their contracts often um, rehire bad cops and, and wipe away records of abuse. Um, it's There's algorithms that they can use, that police use to uh, anticipate who's gonna be more likely to commit a crime. They can turn that on themselves and look at records and see who's most likely to kill somebody that's unarmed. And so, using the science and the techniques, Oakland went from having eight police, police killings a year to zero. 
because they were using that and they were literally just firing bad officers because you have to do something to keep people accountable. So that kind of approach is, is what needs to happen. I mean, definitely there needs to be a conversation about racism and systemic racism and policing and racism, but there are a lot of good people who are police officers in the system that would like to have a better system that would like their fellow officers to be fired and prosecuted with, without the backlash, right? Like without their, um, I don't mean without the backlash, but without within like the, what is it? What is the word? Like the blue code? It's like the, it's the not ratting on cops. It's the not. Um, the blue line. The what? The, thin, the blue line. Is that what it is? I, forget, I don't, I forget, I don't yeah. remember what it's called, but essentially this, like the no snitching that there is on the streets, the same thing exists in the police department. And if we can get, scientific evidence-based solutions that take the pressure off of cops from snitching, ugh, snitching on each other and we can then get rid of them systematically, that will provide justice and that will be one step forward, you know? But right now, we don't have any leadership from the government. If anything, our federal government is stoking the flames of this fire and, and aggravating the entire situation and it, there's no clear path forward right now that I can see. And it's, I think that's part of what's making this week exceptionally difficult is the lack of a clear path forward. And uh, since, I mean, since you're talking to us as maternal mental health specialists and, and certainly not, I'm, uh, Evelyn, I can't speak for you, but I'm not an expert on this. It goes back to what do I, what am I well enough for right now? And what do I have control over? So what can I do? And remember, like, this is, as, as Evelyn, you said it, this doesn't just end. So it's not, okay, I'm going to donate here or go to this protest and then I've done my piece and I'm, it's over. It's going to be a continuous process. So for those moms who are not doing well right now mentally or are early postpartum, it's okay. <laughs> take care of you and your baby. Um, and then take actionable steps when you're well. And it's day by day and keep listening and learning and, and listening to the black and brown voices um, to learn and confront and be uncomfortable and sit with um, that feeling of being uncomfortable, which is as you, Caitlin, you started out by saying with therapy, you should feel uncomfortable. If you're never uncomfortable in your therapy, then you need a new therapist because um, we need to confront these things um, in order to change them. So it, step by step, control, you know, what we have control over, actionable things, and taking care of yourself in order to be, to be able to give. I think it's the mental health standpoint on this. Uh, Evelyn, would you yeah. add to that? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you can't do everything all the time, just exactly like in motherhood. You can't, you can't be everything and do everything, but you can kind of take the steps that that are okay right now, you know, like you said, Laura, if, you, if it's right now donating what you can, if you can, if it's just reading, you know, informing yourself because, and thinking about how am I going to raise, you know, an anti-racist child, you know, if that's, if that's a value that's important, you know, start doing the work now, even if it's reading, you know, two pages out of a book, you know, or, or getting the books following the social media that helps educate you on that you know, and, and do what you can, because yeah, it's not, 
there's not like an end date. It's not like, you know, you go to, you know, a workshop for a day and you're like, oh, I'm anti-racist. It's a continual process. So, it, and it's okay to, to kind of learn and make mistakes along the way. Cause you know, we all, we all will just like in motherhood. And remember, parenting is political, no matter what your standpoint is. We, we all want our children to be safe, have access to clean water, um, be educated, have opportunities. At the foundation of all this is, you know, we want what's best for our kids. And that involves um, becoming political and having our voice heard. And if more mothers and fathers, you know, spoke up and um, about what we want for our children, then... Um, we would be in a better direction than we, than we are right now. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having this conversation. Like you said, Evelyn, I think um, even as two white women and a woman of color, it's, these are the conversations that need to happen, even though they're uncomfortable. As you watch me and Laura stumble through, we don't have all the answers, but we're trying and we're going to keep trying and we're probably going to make mistakes and I'm happy to learn from them. So thank you. Thank you so much for having this conversation with us. Thank you. And us next time.